Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Hat History. Uh, this is a very special bonus sort of episode we got here. Um, you know, a while back we did record some episodes, one about lobotomies and one about a specific lobotomy um, about uh, God. <laughs> one Rosemary Kennedy. Yes, yes, that lady. That, that very um, interesting and important uh, case. So anyway... Um, I digress. We did get an expert on, on lobotomies to come onto the podcast and do a little bit of uh, an interview with us. Now, keep in mind that since this is an expert interview, we were not doing quite as much bullshittery as we usually do. Um, but yeah, there's we a lot taking of taking this seriously. Yes, and there's a lot of very good content in this. Um, and he'll also provide some good references for um, things you can look at in the future if you want to. Um, and Jake, uh, why don't you introduce uh, our guest for this special episode? All right. Our guest today is Jack L. High. He is actually somewhat close to us. He is a resident Minnesotan. of Minnesota. Yes. He is a very, very prominent Minnesotan. And he has been studying in both history and medical history for quite some time. He is winner of the 2020 Best Book Award for the American Society of Journalists and Authors. For the book The Lost Brothers, he has also written the books The Nazi and the Psychiatrist, looking into the mental workings of the Nazi party and Nazi members who worked within areas of psychiatry. And for this book, and one which I read for our previous research, The Lobotomist, as well as Nonstop, a story about Northwest Airlines and Lost Minnesota. Yeah, so, and without a doubt, I mean, we think this uh, interview has, without a doubt, been one of the most uh, intriguing and definitely one of the most insightful things we've been able to do so far via the podcast. So we hope you enjoy our conversation with Jack L. High. Okay, so this will be for you, Mr. L. High. I'm hoping that's not too formal for you. <laughs> no, not at all. I can discuss this wonder, wonderful topic formally, informally, or any way in between. Wonderful. So, um, I, doing my research for our podcast episode on lobotomies, um, obviously outside the realm of us being a history comedy podcast, we did take this very much uh, seriously considering sort of the patients and, and the situations that they were in. So, in looking over your book, The Lobotomist, which did form some part of my just basic background knowledge for this, I just wanted you to quick just start for the audience, just introducing yourself, and then we'll kind of get into your book, and then we'll we'll kind of work from there. Okay, fine. Thank you. Um, I'm Jack Elhai. I'm a writer of nonfiction. I've written several nonfiction books, including The Lobotomist, and I've also written a large number of articles for a variety of publications over the years. I write a lot about history and medicine and science, and so when the those and crime as well. And so when those topics overlap, that's really a sweet spot for me. And um, uh, I first um, came on to the topic of lobotomy quite a while ago now. Um, I remember back in the 1980s, I watched a movie called Francis, which was about the actress Francis Farmer. And there's a scene in that movie, star Jessica Lange, and there's a scene in the movie uh, where uh, Francis, the main character, is hospitalized in a psychiatric hospital and receives a lobotomy from a doctor who looks exactly like Walter Freeman. 
Uh, I didn't know that at the time, but that, that was my introduction to lobotomy and also the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And um, later on, much later on uh, in the mid 1990s, uh, I read an article about a uh, man uh, who was hospitalized in the Minnesota State Hospital System who also had a lobotomy. And, um, his, and his case was interesting to me. I didn't know that lobotomies happened in the upper Midwest area, how often they happened. And so I contact, he, he was deceased by the time I had read about him. And I contacted a niece of his who knew quite a bit about his history and ended up writing an article about the practice of lobotomies in the upper Midwest in a magazine, a, a medical magazine called Minnesota Medicine. And that, that really launched me onto the topic because I found it so intriguing. Um, it's life or death stuff. Uh, it's about technological advances in medicine. It's about the brain. All of those uh, subjects appealed to me. And so that's, that's really how I got onto it. And um, even though I published the book um, back in 2005, um, it's a topic that just keeps coming up, uh, the, the topic that won't end. And uh, I've ended up talking about it quite a bit since then at medical conferences and in hospital grand round sessions with physicians and other kinds of settings. So. I have become the lobotomy guy in a sense, and that's okay. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't really cut you off. Just laugh at the lobotomy guy line. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I, it, to me, it's a, sort of the same feeling of, you know, looking at the lobotomy when you talked about, you know, being first introduced into it uh, through that film. I had actually kind of had a similar situation in that my first, you know, contact with that practice was through one was through the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm -hmm. um, and in being, you know, obviously uh, not uh, an impressionable young man at the time, I do remember just sort of seeing the use of that practice and having it kind of form that inner opinion in me. But um, we, that'll kind of, we'll bring that up a little bit later. But, uh, Sort of my first big question that I wanted to ask about the lobotomist for you was just during your research into this story or into this uh, story of Dr. Friedman, um, your viewpoint of lobotomy, I guess, just considering a, a legitimate medical procedure in its basic sense, um, whether it be good or bad at the time, I kind of want to avoid at this current moment, but. When you started off looking into the into the lobotomy, do you have any change in sort of how you viewed it, say, starting and then ending in any way? Or I most certainly did. When I began writing about and researching lobotomy, and especially uh, Dr. Walter Freeman's involvement, very important involvement, um, I saw him as a monster. Uh, who was uh, willy-nilly uh, operating, uh, putting tools into people's brains and, and uh, twirling them around and, um, and wreaking all kinds of havoc among patients. But as my research went on, I found out that the context for all of this was very important. 
and also that it's not a, a story in contrasts of black and white, that there are a lot of shades of gray in this story. So uh, speaking about the context, uh, this was, uh, Dr. Freeman was coming up with his ideas and began practicing lobotomies in the, in the 1930s. And this was a time of a great crisis in, the, in psychiatric medicine, especially in psychiatric hospitals, because they had a huge influx of patients and no viable treatments. Um, at that time, Freudian psychoanalysis was beginning to come to the fore, but it was not an effective treatment for people who were deeply psychotic and dangerously mentally ill. And so the only uh, courses of action available to doctors at that time to treat um, patients who were severely mentally ill was to confine them and confine them in hospitals. And many of those patients who were institutionalized only left in the, their coffins uh, when they died. It was common back then for people to remain hospitalized for decades. Um, and then there were a very small number of patients who, um, who got better on their own without any treatment. But, but patients, doctors, and patients' families were desperate at this time for some kind of treatment that could relieve the suffering of the patients and even better, get them out of the hospital. And so that, that was the context for Dr. Freeman be, beginning his work and um, in lobotomy. And uh, I think uh, it's also another part of the context is Freeman himself. What was his background? He was a highly skilled, highly knowledgeable neurologist and psychiatrist. He was board certified in both specialties. He was not a quack. Uh, he was... Um, not a, a faker. Um, he believed in what he was doing. That doesn't make it right what he was doing, but, but he was no monster. And um, as time went on and he began teaming up with a medical partner, a neurosurgeon named uh, James Watts, <clears throat> the two of them um, began refining the technique of lobotomy, operating on more patients. And uh, they learned from their worst mistakes um, uh, and, um, and made improvements. Even so, um, lobotomy was not a procedure that helped very many patients. And it did hurt a significant number of patients who either did, just didn't respond to the treatment or, or got worse and suffered brain injuries in addition to whatever psychiatric problems they began with. Uh, and maybe this would be a good time for me to explain what a lobotomy is. It's, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a kind of brain surgery. Uh, there have been uh, different approaches to it over the years, uh, but it's surgery on the brain to relieve the symptoms of psychiatric illness. So in Walter Freeman's case, he was trying to disrupt the neural pathways that connected the frontal lobes with the thalamus, a region of the brain that he believed uh, regulated emotional response. 
And he believed that many of the symptoms um, that he was seeing in mentally ill patients resulted from an overactive thalamus. And that if he could stop some of these you know, very frenetic impulses that were leaving the thalamus, if he could stop those from reaching the frontal lobes, then he thought patients might not suffer from some of the symptoms uh, that they had, such as um, visual and uh, oral hallucinations, um, obsessions, uh, deep depression, um, uh, what uh, we now call, um, well, what was then called manic depression, and um, lobotomy was also used to treat uh, what we now call PTSD, was then called shell shock, mm -hmm. and sometimes even alcoholism um, and other, um, other disorders. So um, all of that is part of the context too, who Freeman was and, and what he was trying to do. Yeah, if I might just ask a follow-up, uh, speaking about context a little bit, like I know you mentioned there was that influx in the 1930s uh, of patients. Uh, what specific reasons were, was that uh, influx sort of um, happened? Do we kind of have the reasons for that? Or? Um, the reasons for that, I think, are complicated, but it has to do with changes in family life, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Uh, in the past, it was common for families to take care of their older relatives who were failing. Um, and that was happening less and less. And, and today it happens even less. Um, also, um, a uh, increase, I think, in stress of life, uh, especially in urban areas, uh, but uh, increased rates of depression and loneliness and other things that can lead to mental illness. And um, uh, let's remember too that prohibition ended in the early 1930s. So that means more people were drinking um, after that. And, um, and that also can lead to mental disorders. So all of that was happening. And then there was an even greater increase um, in the population of psychiatric hospitals during and after World War II when service members began coming home, they'd seen terrible things. They suffered from um, PTSD and the hospitals were terribly full after the war. In fact, um, there was a time right after the war when one third of all hospital beds in the United States were filled by psychiatric patients, which is an extraordinarily high number just for one category of patient. Yeah, I, I like the um, <clears throat> the point that you brought up about sort of shades of gray, black and white, because both Lucas and I are, are historians by a, or a degree, actually. But it's one of the things that when we um, discuss it with other people, the idea of history not just being one or the other, but being sort of this, I want to say miasma, but sort of a, a diaspora of different things that make it more like complicated, but also make it more of a fuller picture comes around. Um, so when you did bring up your way of seeing sort of like, sorry, I'm trying to undo the, um, the echo here. But um, in ways of dealing with sort of like the viewpoint, I like that you sort of brought up that um, idea of seeing sort of like at first seeing Freeman sort of as a monster or seeing him more as kind of like a, 
a person who seemed underqualified. Um, and I kind of wanted to just connect my own uh, perspective when I was researching and that I did go through a sort of similar situation. I remembered, especially through what I'd heard and seen of when flew over the cuckoo's nest and all of these other sort of ideals of mental health and, and dealing with mental disorders at that time frame of the uh, sorry, early to mid 20th century, that it was used primarily almost as a means of control than it was about helping people. And obviously that was an aired opinion. But as I was researching, especially for our episode, one of the things that I definitely came across was sort of like saying, yes, sort of in Freeman's case, he was sort of almost like a man put in place to where even though his methods did not help, he was not being malicious with them. He was trying to find a, a solution to a burgeoning problem that didn't seem to have an easy answer. And then me and Lucas did talk too about in the episode, I think in the first episode, we discussed sort of that burgeoning of the mental health system that at that time was definitely not capable enough to handle so many people. So you did start to see sort of situations of, of poor farms or, or I guess insane asylums having to put all of these people into one area sometimes and just not having enough staff. And it was became more and more obvious to me as I researched that the lobotomy as a practice became, like I said, more of a way of being a release valve, sort, sort of to like, we need to find a solution. And this seems to work because based on all of our science, at least at the time, it definitely seemed to justify itself. That's an excellent point because um, another part of the context of that time is that increasingly um, people, especially in psychiatry, were seeing their role to be uh, someone who treats not, not so much individual patients, but helps society function. And if hospitals are so overcrowded, uh, that patients are sleeping on the floor and, and they're coming in, but nobody is going out. That's a serious societal problem. And so Freeman believed that that was part of the problem that he was treating. But he, he also had um, uh, the interests or what he believed to be the interests of individual patients in mind. And uh, he was a man of action, for better or for worse, and often it was for worse. But he did not believe in sitting around and watching uh, bad things happen. And uh, when, um, when his colleagues would criticize him for, um, for operating on the brain or going too fast uh, to take on patients, um, he, his response was always, well, someone has to do something. You're content to just sit around and let these patients suffer. I'm doing something. And you may not agree with what I'm doing, but I am doing something. So I, I came to see Freeman, um, not as the monster, as we discussed before, but as uh, someone, as, as you said, who was responding to a problem and uh, I think he was justified in, uh, in the very early days of lobotomy, the 1930s, um, following that course for a ways uh, to see if it could help patients. So that's the evolution I made. Um, but um, 
where Freeman really failed was a little later on uh, in the late 1940s and fit into the 50s when other treatments became available like psychoactive medication, uh, Thorazine and other drugs that came into use at that time. They're, they're primitive drugs now, but they were huge improvements at the time. And um, he would not um, pay heed. He thought that um, psych medications for psychiatric problems were a fad. He thought it would go away, that lobotomies would return and that he was going to be the guy who would uh, hold the flag until that time uh, when lobotomies became dominant again. It became the mainstream treatment that they had been for a time, especially in the 1940s. Yeah, uh, one of the things to add to that that I think you make a very salient point about was that idea of holding the flag that um, I noticed, and it was that obviously wasn't glory seeking to what I feel to be an extent that may make it a, a negative thing, but I did see a lot in Freeman's ideals of wanting to be known as the person who ideally helped solve the mental health crisis. Uh, do you think that that came across in your research, or do you think maybe? It was a little bit more nuanced than that. I, I don't think he solved anything, but I think he laid some groundwork that we're still using today. Uh, back in the 1930s, it was uncommon for psychiatrists to believe that, um, that, a, uh, that you could treat the brain to treat psychiatric disorders. That was a... Uh, uh, a new and, and rare way of thinking for psychiatrists. Most psychiatrists then thought along the Freudian ground, the lines that um, psychiatric disorders arose out of our past experiences and that the way to treat them was to talk about them, uh, talk therapy, psychoanalysis. And there are some neuroses and perhaps some psychoses that can be treated that way. But the idea of uh, a biological basis to mental illness was something that Freeman was championing when most psychiatrists weren't. And of course, that's the page we're on right now. Right. Um, and, um, and so Freeman deserves um, some credit. I'm not sure if credit is the right word, but acknowledgement at least that he was following that path long before most of his colleagues were, and it's the path that we're continuing to follow now. Yeah. Um, so within that uh, point that we're making right now, I did notice that one of the things that I was looking at, especially uh, going into our research, was that there was a lot of times where I did have to take pause and, and say to myself, like, this information seems like it's almost too not good to be true but almost a little too like um what's the word that i'm thinking of in this case lucas um i'm on your head man i don't know i'm sorry <laughs> um i'm thinking more um ah, where's escape me unfortunately uh, it was probably a little bit too um sort of exciting i guess would be the word that i would use in in means of saying like a good example of this to try to put it into context was that um, like the story of Friedman's first acknowledgement of the ice pick lobotomy, where he started using a grapefruit and an ice pick that he got out of his kitchen uh, drawer. And I kind of had to 
pause and, and roll that over to my head and be like, is, is this really how that started? Like in my brain, I always think of it being in, in a situation where it's in a facility and that there are staff around and things of that nature. Um, so sort of just to throw that to you, I guess the question I wanted to ask is, is there a time in your research that you ran across something that just had to make you sort of take pause and sort of ponder uh, whether it was a positive or a negative or, or anything in between or or what what what's going on here um there are two moments that i can think of um that fought, fall into that category one was um i did a lot of my research for the lobotomist at george washington university in washington dc because their library the gelman library there has um, by far the biggest archive of materials related to Walter Freeman and his surgical partner, James Watts. So it's called the Freeman Watts Collection at, in this archival collection. And so I went through all of that material. And one of the things I found was a photo album, um, pictures that Freeman had taken uh, 10 years before he got interested in lobotomy. But this is when he was a pathologist at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in DC, uh, a very large psychiatric institute. And, uh, and it's where at St. Elizabeth's, he be first became impre uh, impressed by the tragedy of what passed for treatment for um, patients then with psychiatric illnesses. And, um, and so he, he decided to do some research on determining whether there was a physiological or a biological basis to their illnesses. And so when patients died, which I think happened quite often at St. Elizabeth's, he would get the bodies as the pathologist there. I don't think he treated any living patients at that hospital and, and examine them. And make slides um, from their from slices of their brain and uh, things like that to try and find measure them um, do anything he could think of along those lines and so the album that I found was a, a collection of pictures he took of the dead patients that he examined in this way and it was horrifying it was gruesome uh, he had uh, he, one of the things he did was, measure the height at death of the patients. Um, and how would he do that? Uh, you'd think he would lay patients out on the table and measure, no, he didn't. He would hang them from the ceiling and measure them vertically that way. Mm -hmm. And uh, so a whole album of photos like that with the uh, showing the devastated bodies of patients who had died at St. Elizabeth's uh, was, it was too much for me to handle. I had to leave the archive and take some walks around the block and um, have some nightmares about it in the nights that followed. So that was one moment. And then another moment uh, came um, with the um, discovery that, uh, that you alluded to or his development of the ice pick or transorbital lobotomy. Uh, so, um, it's important to understand that in the early years, maybe the first 10 years of Freeman's lobotomies with Watts, 
the, the, they were done as uh, very normal looking operations in an um, operating room with uh, often, not always, with anesthesia. Um, Freeman was not a surgeon, so he would tell Watts where to cut and where to insert the leukotome, the uh, tool that made the cuts. And, um, but Freeman came to believe after about 10 years of this, and after maybe treating seven or 800 patients, that it was too unwieldy a process, too slow and too expensive um, for patients who were confined to state psychiatric hospitals uh, all over the country. These hospitals did not have operating rooms. They did not have anesthesiologists on the premises. Um, and he wanted to find a method of performing lobotomies that could be done in this kind of much more modestly equipped hospital. And that's how he came up with the idea of the transorbital ice pick approach. He did use an ice pick uh, originally that he found in his kitchen drawer because it was the right length and the, and the right degree of sharpness. And um, he, he used this approach of placing the tip of the tool uh, beneath the eyelid of the patient while they were unconscious after they had been shocked with an electroconvulsive uh, therapy machine and, um, and went above the eyeball to the back of the eye orbit, the bony, th very thin bony wall separating the eye orbit from the brain case and tapped it with a hammer and got through. It's a blind procedure. Uh, he, he could not, there was no imaging process that allowed him to see what he was doing. And so he um, swept the ice pick or the leukotome you know, so many degrees to the left, so many degrees to the right. And in doing so, he thought he was making the cuts that he intended to make. And reading about how he uh, devised that procedure, practiced it initially on grapefruits and then cadavers, and then finally on living patients uh, was horrifying. Um, that he would take that kind of risk for an uh, unproven procedure. It was really experimental and playing with people's lives in that way. But he got the results he wanted. I don't know if you would call them successful exactly. Walter Freeman's, one of his sons, Frank, told me that saying that a lobotomy was successful was like saying that a car crash was successful. Um, <laughs> it happened and it had a result. And in, in the small number of cases that result uh, appeared to benefit the patient somewhat, at least to the extent that they could leave the hospital and return to their family and sometimes even return to work. Um, but more often didn't get that kind of result. So those, were, those are the two moments that come to mind. So in that, actually, I, I like that you kind of brought up the uh, photographs because during my research, I did kind of immerse myself. Um, in that case, not with those particular photographs, which is new to me, that those exist because as far as what I had seen or heard, maybe due to the fact that our, our resources for it were unfortunately a little limited, that we couldn't get a chance to uh, see them over at the archives there, 
but there was numerous black and white films that were made um, during, I'd say about maybe the 30s and the 40s of patients who had gone through it. And it was, to me, this very eerie feeling of thinking about it in, in you know, or having sort of the, the past tense and the ability to think about what had happened and what had transpired with so many years to tell us that the that this procedure hadn't overall been totally successful. And look at all these people being betrayed as saying that they were totally cured and, and look that this person could not eat, but now he does or she does exactly what they need to do. Look at how responsive they are. And it was this sort of strange, almost not parading, but it seemed in my case, and I, I'm kind of curious how how you feel about this. It seemed kind of like they were almost like pageanting those that were somewhat successful to out to the people and saying like, look, this is this is a, of a higher success rate. And it kind of bolstered that procedure's reputation. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, those films make for rough viewing. Um, and, um, you know, I've heard of medical students uh, watching them and having to run from the room and, and things like that. But um, there, it, it, uh, I think it, Freeman saw those as promotional films. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, he was going to present his best cases, what he thought of as the best cases in those films. Um, it, he cast a wider net in his books about lobotomy, where he presented a lot of case histories of patients who did not do so well. Um, and uh, many who he acknowledged he hadn't done any good for at all, including almost all of the cases of children who had been lobotomized. Uh, he, uh, during his years performing lobotomies, Freeman operated on uh, maybe 10 or 12 children um, who, who exhibited um, very psychotic, disruptive behavior at young ages. I think the youngest was four years old. And uh, there's a, a, a well-known case of a 12-year-old uh, who had a lobotomy um, in the later parts of Freeman's career, a man named Howard Dully, who has written a book about his experiences, which I recommend. It's called My Lobotomy. And Howard is still um, with us now. He's in his 70s. Uh, he is intact. He, he's a smart man. He's emotionally intact. He wrote a book uh, and he, he describes very vividly um, what his family life was before his lobotomy, why he had a lobotomy. It was mainly uh, the wishes of his step stepmother because his, she found his behavior disruptive and uh, what his life was like afterwards. He knew he had been damaged, but he didn't know exactly how until quite late in life when he confronted all of this. So um, the, the books are hard to come by, um, but um, Freeman wrote a few of them and they present more of a wide ranging variety of patient outcomes. I have heard of the uh, the case that you spoke of, of the child that had received one and then it kind of obviously through the, the trauma of being in, inflicted upon the brain there, it kind of just forgotten of it entirely. And in my mind, when I had read that story as context and in I had read that sort of preceding a, a Rosemary episode 
which kind of helps us to transition into this question, but it, it was sort of this crazy thing to me where it was, you know, done to somebody in such a way that you could move on with your life and yet have no recollection of it was, was insane to me, which I think overall for our episode and, and the aim of my research that I was trying to get across to the listener was that it all just showed that we knew remarkably little and still know remarkably little about you know, some functions of the brain and about things that it does. And so we take all of these experiences, especially from Friedman and, and Moniz and Watts and, and their practices, and we have to kind of see it as being, you know, these men were pioneers, whether positive or negative, and they were doing something that had yet to have been done before with really no safety cable to kind of say like, this is what we think would be best practice. Mm -hmm. um, and in that case too, sort of to just bring it forward, especially when we talk about um, having a child being lobotomized by a step parent in this case, when we started moving into sort of like Rosemary Kennedy's life and things like that, obviously we wanted to be as respectful as we could given the circumstances, because this is a very tragic story. But one of the things obviously that I just kind of wanted to start to ask you about Rosemary was that during your research, obviously, because you had to include it because Freeman was part of the process. Did you kind of see anything on her case that you saw that reflected society's opinions of mental health or of mental illness at the time? Yes, uh, in Rosemary Kennedy's case, uh, there was a, an interesting social component to it. Uh, Rosemary Kennedy was the oldest uh, daughter in her family. And uh, it was a very, you know, of course, accomplished family. And it, Rosemary was different uh, because uh, probably because of difficulties with her delivery when she yeah. was born. may have been deprived of oxygen for a time. Um, uh, and, uh, and she grew up um, different within that family, but she was not, um, I'm not even certain that she was mentally ill in any sense. She had some troubles with learning. She may have <laughs> suffered some learning disabilities, but she was able to care, care for herself quite well. She toured Europe uh, with her family and sometimes without her family, met royalty in Europe um, and conducted herself very well. Uh, but as she got older and reached her twenties, um, her father, um, Joe, Joe Kennedy, was uh, quite a dictator in that family. And he was uh, very focused on the political prospects of uh, JFK and his older brother and uh, saw Rosemary as uh, a possible, um, someone who could get in the way of all that in the sense that uh, he believed that Rosemary was wild, socially wild. And he worried that she might get pregnant. And what if a Kennedy daughter got pregnant? That would be uh, bad news in many ways. Uh, 
And so he pursued the idea of a lobotomy for Rosemary without telling uh, his wife, Rose. And Rose um, was not in the US when it happened. Freeman operated on Rosemary with Watts when Rosemary was 23. And it was a disaster uh, because uh, Rosemary came out of the operation much more disabled than she had been going into it and needed uh, constant continuing care for the rest of her life. It is a tragic story. And um, I, uh, the, the societal component of it is that she was a young woman who a man, her dad, wanted to control. Uh, most lobotomies were performed on women. Um, uh, about 60% of Freeman's lobotomies were performed on women. Society was less tolerant of what was considered aberrant behavior in women than it was in men. And um, uh, one of the uh, people who I interviewed in the course of writing the book was uh, a woman whose mother had a lobotomy uh, in Minnesota. Um, and uh, because of bizarre behavior um, or what people, her family and neighbors considered bizarre behavior, and um, it, it, she had a lobotomy, but as it turned out, she was having um, hormonal imbalances because of menopause. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lobotomy did not, could not help her. And hormonal therapy would have helped her, but it was uh, too late. So um, I think Rosemary Kennedy is a sad example of that gender uh, component of lobotomy that women suffered more often than men. Yeah. And I think that is a very salient point in that during our research that definitely came across because, and I just wanted to relate sort of a personal story was um, in my family lineage on my mother's side, there was a series of, of women in my grandfather's family who, because it was a large family, it was a rural family that lived in this county there was instances of sort of the same thing where hormonal imbalances would happen amongst other families. And these stories would be told from aunts, great aunts, uncles about such and such a person whose daughter or mother or sister would have to go into down to you know, Madison or to some large hospital in the area, either here in Minnesota or Illinois, to receive a lobotomy for something exactly like that. Or in a lot of cases, because where we live in this part of Wisconsin is a very open area. There sometimes aren't a lot of people around, especially in the wintertime when the weather starts to take a toll, as I'm sure you are fully aware of where you live, kind of in the similar situation, the winter's being pretty harsh. People would have serious um, depression, wherein they, that seemed like a logical step to them, obviously, because that just seem to merit it um i know within like lucas and i and lucas you'll probably agree on this situation was um when we were researching one of the things especially that showed me sort of societal implications for the lobotomy regarding rosemary's situation was the way that her family kind of ceased to act like she even really existed outside of the casual mention 
obviously not referring because it was such a politically prestigious family that you had a disabled daughter because in most cases, Joe Kennedy Sr. was afraid that it would sink his son's, you know, bids for be going to Senate or becoming president. And I think too, that was definitely something in our research. And I'm curious with your case, you know, obviously whether you sort of found a similar perspective wherein like say Rosemary's parents, would they act sort of like a similar parent in the situation or was, was it a very special case for Rosemary? I think the Kennedys reacted in their way to Rosemary, that after her lobotomy and its bad result, um, uh, Rosemary was situated in a, a few different places for a while, but uh, ended up um, in, a, um, in a convent care home in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. and, um, and no family member visited her there for more than 10 years, uh, not until JFK came and visited while he was campaigning in Wisconsin in 1958. So um, I'm sure she was not out of mind uh, for her brothers and sisters and mom and dad, but she was out of sight. Yes. And, um, and there were political considerations to all, for all that. Uh, afterwards, though, uh, she did visit more frequently with her family and, um, and became more part of it. But by that time, she was an older woman and had, um, her, had deteriorated quite a bit and was limited. Yeah, and that, that was sort of the thing I think that we did too want to focus on, at least in our episode, was that sort of, albeit... I would almost say bittersweet, happy ending wherein she did seem to regain some quality of life towards the end, albeit if it be very minimal. But I think in that too, when we talked about the lobotomy was just that for Rosemary's case, especially she did become kind of a political pawn to her father's whims mostly. And I think in that, that kind of was what definitely sort of shape that tragicness is now in society when we have somebody ideally we want to acknowledge their existence but i know that is obviously not always the case um in that situation right and um one thing the kennedys did was uh after um, the 50s and when it, she became better known uh, to the public as a part of that family again, um, the Kennedys became interested in the uh, in supporting organizations, groups uh, that dealt with what at the time was called mental retardation, but intellectual disabilities. Mm -hmm. And uh, Rosemary was often held up as an example of someone who had that kind of disability. And uh, she wasn't. Um, she uh, lobotomy was never a treatment by anyone that I know of, any physician, for that kind of intellectual deficit or disability. Um, it was more uh, a, a, a behavioral kind of treatment. Um, 
And it was the kind of lobotomy that was done in her case to rein her in, like in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I did not in my research come across very many cases that were like that, a few here and there. But, um, uh, but, the, but the, the Kennedys were the Kennedys, you know, family. We all have strange families in a way and the Kennedys had their kind of strangeness and that's the way it came out in yeah. their family. Yeah, and just to build off that strangeness, I know we added as just sort of part of it was that when she was growing up, I think they had put her in a, I believe it was a boarding school and they had tried everything that they could, but at the time they were starting to see uh, escalation of some more violent behavior, I believe at this point. And I think what Joe Kennedy's method of saying thank you was, is a means of sort of putting to perspective the way that this family, or at least Joe thought, was that he bought them a new tennis court as, as like a thank you. And to me, that was just sort of like a very quintessentially like old money thing for them to do in that case. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, um, the um, family setting for, so Kennedys were one kind of family. Uh, there were many kinds of families. And um, it's very interesting how different families handled patients, their loved ones who had received lobotomies. Um, one of um, Walter Freeman's stranger beliefs was that uh, patients who were from African-American or Jewish families fared better because their families cared for them better. Freeman believed that. I don't know what was the basis of his belief, but there were families who uh, took on more easily the role of accepting a, a family member who had a lobotomy and uh, reteaching that person uh, things that they lost the ability to do, like to toilet training, to care for themselves in other ways, um, the patients often came back home um, with lots of, um, with few inhibitions um, and had to relearn how to act socially and things like that. And then other families were poorly equipped to have mm -hmm. someone like that re-enter their family. Um, and then there were the, the small number of cases of lobotomy patients who recovered and overcame whatever deficits their lobotomies gave them and went to work um, as uh, musicians and teachers. And in one case, as the director of a psychiatric hospital, uh, all kinds of careers. Uh, but these patients were small in number. Most of, most of them were not so fortunate. Yeah. No, that is, that is interesting. I've, I have not up to this point heard of that opinion out of them, but I think too, it, it, does sort of play the idea of the lobotomy into maybe two other societal theories at the time where they, you know, discuss the, the household of a certain race group or a certain religious group would be more adaptive or, or more accepting. Yeah, um, well, he, he certainly believed it. Um, and, you know, maybe in his limited experience, that was true. 
but mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't think anyone now would make a claim like that. Yeah. And in speaking of now, um, maybe this is a good time to say that lobotomies are not performed anymore. And they, they haven't been since the, um, since the 1970s or so. The latest case that I found of a lobotomy being performed in the United States was in 1978. And I only knew about that one because the patient's doctors got a court order to allow the lobotomy to take place. And so we do have other forms of psychiatric surgery now. Uh, that has not gone extinct at all. There are um, uh, psychiatric surgeries done with gamma rays and uh, with um, other forms of surgery that damage very small parts of the brain. And also there are a large number of implanted devices now that electrically stimulate the brain. And this has been used in patients with depression and um, obsessive compulsive disorders and maybe a few other kinds of disorders. And the benefit of those is they're reversible. If the um, electrical charge produces some undesirable effect, they can be turned off and the patient returns to exactly how he or she was Mm. before. So there are uh, physicians now who do psychiatric surgery or functional neurosurgery as they like to call it. And, uh, but lobotomies are no more anywhere in the world. Well, that's definitely very interesting in that later part about the idea of turning it on and off. I'd be curious to see um, where they head with that if they've made any recent progress. Um, In this case, uh, maybe just hand it over to Lucas. Uh, We'll kind of come to wrapping it up here. So I'll give Lucas an opportunity to ask any extra questions if he feels he wants to, or for you, sir, if you want to ask us any questions, you can feel free. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only uh, question that I had in addition to what uh, Jake was asking was um, just a, so can you kind of describe why you think Walter, why it was difficult for Walter Freeman to sort of um, adapt to some of those new techniques that were coming out? Um, you know, what was the main reason he didn't decide to adapt off lobotomies, do you think? Uh, there are two reasons that come to mind for me. The first just has to do with his personality. He was a, not only a man of action, as I mentioned before, he was a showman. He liked to impress people. And when he was teaching um, at George Washington University, teaching uh, neurology, he would often pull a stunt like um, writing on the chalkboard of the room, the lecture room, um, one set of words with his left hand and another completely different set of words with his right hand simultaneously. And that, that always got a rise out of students when he did something like that. And his lectures were considered so entertaining that uh, the students brought their dates to the lectures to hear Walter Freeman speak. So he was, um, you know, he had this bigger than life, very extravagant, show-offy, showboaty personality. And uh, performing lobotomies fits into that because here he is with his leukotome with a, one swipe to the left and another swipe to the right. Uh, he can change patients. Um, 
drugs are much less showy. You swallow them, takes a while, um, the results are unpredictable, that kind of thing. So that was part of it. But also I think by the time the psychoactive medications became available in the 1950s, Freeman had really tied his career to lobotomies. And if he was not the lobotomy doctor, what was he? I don't think he knew. And um, so he continued performing lobotomies until 1968. And by that time he was almost alone um, in the US. Um, and um, he just couldn't see himself uh, not doing it. And um, even after he stopped performing lobotomies, he continued going around the country in his camper van, um, uh, meeting with his old patients to catch up on follow-up visits. And he wanted to know, uh, had his work on them helped or hurt? He needed that reassurance and in a way, his patients were treating him by that point, making him feel better about what he had based his career on. And a good time maybe for me to mention that Camp Pervan, it was not called a, lobotom a lobotomobile. Um, as some people <laughs> believe, it's not a word he ever used. It came into use um, after Freeman died with someone who wrote a book about him, coined the word and it's a great word it, and it's stuck, but it wasn't a term that Freeman ever used. And he didn't perform lobotomies in the camper van either. Yeah, well, um, I mean, I think we've got a lot of uh, awesome answers and, uh, you know, some clarification on things that Jake and I did not know about. So we definitely greatly appreciate that. It's been, it's been my pleasure. Um, one thing if I could mention is uh, if, if any of your listeners want to learn more about this, there's a couple of things they can do. They can visit my website, um, which is at lhi.com, that's E-L hyphen H-A-I.com. And uh, they'll find some more material about it. And also there was a very good um, American Experience PBS documentary made from my book, also called The Lobotomist, which uh, sometimes appears on YouTube um, and um, uh, Vimeo and uh, has been on Amazon Prime viewing uh, on and off for a while. So there are ways to see that as well. Well, awesome. Well, we greatly appreciate it. And uh, thank you for your time. As I said, it's been my pleasure. Well, and that concludes our conversation today with Jack L. High. Uh, we thank him again very much for appearing on this episode. It was a great time. Uh, Jake, any closing thoughts? I think it was a very insightful interview. I think he teached us, teached us, we learned a lot. Uh, learned Jake a lot. apparently forgot grammar, but we did learn a lot yeah, from the I episode. Yeah, grammar. It was, oh boy. Um, but we, uh, again, thank you so much. Um, and if, he, if you guys are super interested in any of the stuff he does, we can we can really just vouch for everything he does is really great. So go check it out. He does have a website. Uh, I believe it's just jacklhigh.com, yep, correct? jacklhigh.com. He has a lot of interesting articles that he's either written or had some process of research in. I've read a couple of them. They are very interesting. We might have to look into them for some episodes later yeah, on. Yeah, so you might be hearing about more of his stuff. Um, but if you're interested in your stuff, definitely go check it out. Worth a, worth a listen for sure. Um, otherwise, we really appreciate you checking this out, and we'll be back again uh, very soon. Talk to you soon. <laughs>